Today's going to be a little different that we're really going to hone in on one verse. And I think it's such an important message that, that uh, some of us will need to be reminded of. Some of us, maybe this is a new concept, but it is very much something that we find here is a bigger picture of the Christian faith. Now, you have a program here this morning. I've got a copy. I'm first going to ask you to add a phrase. If you're filling out stuff, I encourage you to, to find room uh, somewhere in there to write this down because this is the big idea. This is what I want you to walk away with this morning. And it is, as we look at um, the life and death of Jesus, Jesus gave his life for me. We're going to look at all the implications of this. He gave his life for me to take my life from me so that he could live his life through me. And, and I just don't know if many Christians fully grasp what this means and the implications of this. And I think Paul is wanting us, and God writing through Paul is telling us that there's more to it than that Jesus went to a cross to pay for your sin. And we've talked about up to this point that, okay, I'm not, it's not just that my sin is wiped clean. I am actually given the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, the worthiness of Jesus is credited to my account. And, and that is huge in and of itself. But this is even something else as a part of that dynamic of how does God want us to live out the Christian life here and now? Why doesn't God just, hey, if you accept, if you hear the good news, that all you have to do is receive because it's not dependent on what we do, but it's dependent on what God did, what Jesus did. So all we're doing is accepting this free gift of salvation if all I have to do is accept that, and the Bible says, how do you do that? It says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You simply just, I mean, it's, it's just that simple. Like, God, I, I, I receive this free gift. I understand the implications that I need it. So if we do that, why doesn't God just, like, suck us up to heaven after that? That would be kind of cool, right? It'd make church a little bit more interesting, right? Hey, you want to pray to receive Christ? Come here. This is going to be cool, guys. Watch this. You know, but God doesn't do that. He leaves us here. And I think so many of us, like, we really have accepted that free gift. But we don't understand how he wants us to live in a completely different way. Now, what I'm not talking about, because this may be where you go. Oh, okay. And then you start doing a bunch of religious Christian things. No, not really. That's not what I'm talking about. He wants to live his life through us. And so we'll see how Paul kind of lays that out here this morning. Are you guys excited? Well, I'm excited, so whatever. Um, Romans 5. We'll, we'll start with, uh, I don't know what we're starting with. I messed up the slides here, but, but we'll start with uh, uh, Romans 5, verse 5. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Verse 6, when, he, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. And I love that description, that that is how you approach God. Most people and every other religion and throughout human history, 
people have not approached God as I'm just utterly helpless. There is nothing I bring to the table. No, instead they try to bring their works, their religion, their heritage, their whatever, and say, God, uh, hopefully this will make me right, especially compared to all these other losers that I live with. Or, you know, just comparing themselves to other people around them, saying, hey, I'm better than the most of them. And, and we approach God utterly helpless. But Christ came at just the right time, and he died for us sinners. But it goes on. And sometimes I think that's where we stop. And this will, this will help us look at the implications of Easter, which is just in a few weeks. Because I think a, a lot of people say, hey, what's Christianity? Jesus died for your sins. Awesome. What are you celebrating at Easter? Jesus dying for your sins. That's not what we celebrate at Easter. That's Good Friday. Jesus' death, instead of me dying, he, he died in my place. Easter is resurrection. That we live, that, that we uh, serve, rather, a living Savior. And sometimes I don't think we know the full implications of what that means for our life after we've received this incredible gift of our sins being forgiven. Okay, that's where we're headed. Verse 10, it says, goes on to say, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still sinners, we will, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, his death paid for our sin, gets us into the kingdom of God, gets us into that right relationship with God. But certainly now, his life, the fact that he's living, that makes all the difference as we live out this new life in Christ. So, so you know, and some of you guys may look at me weird, like, what exactly are you saying? I hope this is clarified through this message. And honestly, I mean, this may not be a good way to describe it. Paul continues in chapter 6 and 7 to kind of flesh this out. What does this look like? To die to self and to live in this, that Christ living through you. Totally different way of, of approaching God um, after we're saved and how we live our life through him. Okay. So now in verse 11, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Uh, good, good picture there and description. Um, and then he goes into kind of a new, uh, a different subject and section. I kind of want to cover it because we're going through the book of Romans. But um, as much as th- this won't be what we focus on exactly this morning. And, and he answers a question. Do, do you guys, who here appreciates somebody answering a, a question before you ask it? Do you like that? Most of us don't love that. <laughs> but I think that's why God can use Paul so powerfully. He, he kind of is just, he's so logical. He's such a, a brilliant guy that he, he, as he's laying out his argument and truth, he, um, he goes, okay, now the next question you're going to have is, how can one dude pay for the sins of all dudes and dudettes? That was really weird and dumb that I said that. <laughs> just seeing if you're awake. How can one guy, and, and I've had people ask me that question as a pastor, you know, hey, because I'm, you know, I'm supposed to know stuff about the Bible. How can one guy, just Jesus, 
his one sacrifice, his one death, pay for the sin of the whole world? And Paul answers this in a, in a very kind of detailed way, kind of saying it again and again in the pattern that, you, that we see him use. Uh, in verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin inter- entered the world. Adam's sin, Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now God, in a symbol of representation of Christ, who was yet to come. He is a a symbol of a representation of Christ who is yet to come. And so he starts, now he's talking to primarily probably even this, this gathering of believers in Rome is probably a, a Jewish group because they, they probably at the day of Pentecost when the church uh, was kind of born, they were there celebrating that, brought this back to Rome. And so he's kind of assuming some of the, hey, you know this Adam guy, you know the story of the Old Testament, you know what the law is. And so he's kind of making this argument, I think especially towards the people with a Jewish background. Um, but what he's basically saying, well, let's just keep reading this, and, and he, he'll say it a few times. Uh, verse uh, 15, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, and you'll hear that theme, this one man and this one, 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 um, Adam brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. And you hear that even again and again and again, he just shares what the clear gospel is, um, that, that uh, we're guilty of sin, and Jesus takes that sin. Um, it's just a theme that, that, that shouldn't be confused, shouldn't be twisted, shouldn't shouldn't be made something it's not because all you have to do is, is just have a very simple look at Romans to see uh, what the gospel is because Paul is so repetitive about it. So he goes on to say, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for many, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as, God, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whew. Okay, it's, and, and the primary focus is he's answering that question. It was one man's disobedience to God, his sin, his rebellion, that, that then we inherited that sin nature that caused all of humanity to go that direction. And so you got, you know, hey, my Jewish brothers and sisters, you can see that one man brought sin into the world. And so one man in his perfection 
as the only one who's ever lived a righteous, holy, perfect life, God himself coming here is sufficient to cover the sin of the, of the entire, of all who would receive uh, that gift. So we may, now I'm the editor here, and I'm going, hey, Paul, let's sum this up into one verse, okay? <laughs> one guy can cover sin because one guy brought sin into the world. Um, but there's more as he spells out and continues to just reemphasize the gospel. So I think that's awesome and beautiful. So, but what, what I kind of want to rewind just a little bit, and here's what we're going to focus on for the rest of the time here, is verse 10 in chapter 5. And uh, it, it, it's what I spoke of um, in the fact that, yes, Paul says, how much more are we saved through Jesus' life? Okay, yes, we're, we're saved by his death and his payment and his penalty he made. But guys, do you understand that, that, that we serve a living Lord, not a dead Lord? And some of you, to get real practical, I mean, maybe you kind of feel like if you have made a decision to give your life to Christ, you've accepted this free gift of salvation, maybe you kind of feel like your Christianity is a little dead. And this would address that specifically. Like, why could that be? Why might that be a possibility in your life? You don't know the implications of, of the fact that Jesus is alive and how that affects your life or how that can affect your life. And that's as we continue. We won't have a ton of time this morning to go through it, but that's where we're headed in Romans of what does that look like now to live, as Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain. What does it mean to have Christ live through us and in us? Um, so this is not some new thing. This isn't some like, hey, uh, we've got some little secret here at Lifestone Church of secret to the Christian life and no one else has it. So I'm glad you guys came this morning and you've got some cool secret notes or any, no, no, this is Christianity. This is all over the new Testament. And I think sometimes in our, in our desire and our heart to just have people receive Jesus, sometimes we just kind of stop it short there and say, Oh, you prayed to receive Jesus. You're in the kingdom. Your, your eternity is now set. You've got a relationship with Jesus welcome awesome and then we walk away and say okay who else (laughs) because we want to see as many people as possible make that decision but jesus here's what we're going to look at quickly now don't be scared of this but but we're going to kind of do this quick little overview and highlight of the last uh last night of jesus's life because when he knew that it was his last opportunity with his uh the people he was uh leading and influencing his 12 he wanted them to walk away with one thing, knowing he was going to the cross. He, he had this thing that he said, here's the key. Here's what I want. Man, okay, please get this before I'm taken away to be crucified. You got to get this. And that's what, what John chapters 14 through 17 are. And it's the last night of Jesus's freedom. And he's with his 12 disciples in the upper room. And, and he tells those 12 in, in that week and, and following up to it three times that he's going to die a cruel, horrible death that he doesn't deserve. But in three days, he'll pull off Easter. And they don't like that story. They don't like what Jesus is saying. They're like, no, 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 no. What, you, that can't be. 
and they're confused and they don't seem to really understand it or sometimes even remember that he said it. It's, it's, it's strange, but I think it's something that's not their plan. That's not they, how they had it all worked out. And so um, as he's reiterating this and telling them what's going to happen, uh, they're concerned and they have big questions because what he's saying is, okay, I'm going to go. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place. And, it's, and, and he goes on and we'll get to there, but that it's better that I go. It's better that you go, Jesus. We've been hanging out for three years. We've been seeing God do incredible things through you. Miraculous things, healing people, teaching things that, that just are blowing people away about what God's truth and how could it be better you leave us? That doesn't make any sense. And, and that's where they say, well, he's, he's pretty, man, he's been saying this time and time again. And so here's some questions that they have. Philip says, how do we go to heaven? You say you're going to go to heaven, like, and you're going to prepare a place for, like, how do we go? And that's where Jesus makes this crazy claim that either he's a, a crazy guy or just, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis would say, he's a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. And, and he says, I am the way. When Philip says, how do we get to heaven? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive, exclusive, he says it exclusively. <laughs> I want to say another word, but you guys said it in your head for me, right? But he said, I am the exclusive way to get to God the Father. And then Thomas asks, he says, well, well, can you show us God? And he says another crazy thing if he's not who he claims to be. He says, Thomas, you've been with me for three years. If you've seen me, you've seen God. What? And so he's revealing himself in such a, a powerful way. And, 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 you know, these guys are with him, and they're like me. You know, they're just dense, and they're, you know, can't exactly figure out all the complexity of all this, what's happening. Um, and then it goes into chapter 15 as he reveals those huge truths that he's the way and that he is God in the flesh. Um, and he begins chapter 15 by saying, now, now here's what I really want to leave with you, though. Uh, those huge truths, but, but here's the key to you continuing on what I want you to continue on. He says, I am the vine. My father is the gardener. Remain in me. And he has, then he starts this theme of remaining in me, that I'm the vine, and if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. And he's talking to these Jewish guys surrounded in Jerusalem with vineyards, very accustomed to what happens, the process, all those kind of things. So, so it, you know, it's, it's a great illustration for them. And um, in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 4, he says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Diddly squat. He says you can't do anything, really, anything of, of significance, anything of value. And he goes on to say, remain in me, 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 remain in me. Eleven 
times, I think we know what his theme is, and it's the last message he can tell his followers. Remain in me. This is how I want you to live. But you're going to be gone. (laughs) You're leaving us. How do we remain in you and bear much fruit that you want us to bear? And he goes on to talk about what that fruit really is. It's what I taught you. It's to love other people like I've loved you, he says in John 15, 12. This is really the fruit that, that that's what it is. Don't think, I mean, some people think, oh, it's, I don't know, something that, that they would desire it to be, um, some power or some miraculous thing or something like that. He says, really, the essence of it is that you love other people. And, and this is where uh, Christianity is just different. God calls us to live a life we can't live. Like, okay, we've, we've been adopted into God's family. Jesus did it all. We're at that point. We're in the kingdom. And he calls us to live a life we can't live. But he wants, he wants to live that life through us. So we can't do it on our own effort, our own power. He, he wants us to remain in him and, and be connected to him. What does that mean? Um, allow him to guide us and lead us. And they're still pretty clueless, all right? It kind of comes clearer at the end. I hope you guys, you know, maybe you guys are like, we are too. Uh, but uh, basically, what, another difference of this, what he's trying to point out is we as Christians follow this living Lord and living Savior who wants to live through us. Uh, religion is, is dead, it's a dead type of action. Uh, it, they, um, religion is trying to live uh, this life based on what I can do and what I can accomplish in my own effort, and hopefully that is good enough for God. Um, some people want to use either dead religion where there's nobody empowering it, nobody living through it, or some people want to use dead works to try to approach God and say, well, it's my... It's what I do. Here's the stuff I do, my works. That's how I approach God. And then some people just want to ignore God. You know, they're atheists. And, and I respect, I mean, I respect people who have, have that opinion. And so I, I say that with, with respect, it's delusion, respectfully. Is that nice or mean? But it's, it's a form of delusion from my perspective, believing there really is a God and there's incredible evidence to show that it's it's okay well i'm just going to ignore that or claim and come up with a way of thinking that excludes that and so so all three of those okay i'm trying to approach god with my own works my own efforts or some system those two things where i'm just going to ignore it's all about me right i do religion or i do good works or i have come up with a way to figure out my existence without God. And, and that is, um, that's not, Christianity is all about what God has done, not just to save us and to go to a cross and die for our sin and pay for our sin, but to actually live the life he wants us to live through us. All right, are you guys with, still with me? All right, yes, just in my head, you guys all said yes. Um, 
So 11 times he says, remain in me, remain in me. In verse uh, 16, 5, then it gets more specific where we're, where, what that looks like. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I'm going. You, you didn't even bring that up. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. And so there's some great theology there, but then he makes it real and specific. And he tells his followers, I'm sending a person, the advocate, the counselor, the Holy Spirit is coming. And it's better that he comes and I leave. And that's always been hard for me to get a hold of. Jesus telling his 12, hey, there's going to be a better... I mean, if I could, you know, if you had that choice of like, if you could be anybody in history... You know, and like drop yourself in history or replace someone. Like, you know, and let's exclude that you can be Jesus because Jesus is God, okay? Um, Let's just say, you know, a person, a human being, and, you know, uh, okay, yes. Uh, um, One of the 12, maybe, right? One of the 12 disciples? Like guys who got to, you know, spend three years with Jesus, and, and what the Bible says and what Jesus just said is you're better off now than they are hanging out with Jesus in their midst. You guys don't believe me. <laughs> Jesus said it, though. And, and that's where I think we miss a big part of the Christian life is, is we don't understand that, that, that Jesus is very serious, that they had, they had God with them. They had Jesus with them. And worked, you know, and did these incredible things. But, but Jesus says, now, I, I want to not just be with you. I want to be in you. And work through you. And do what I want to accomplish through you. And that's possible because of what I did on the cross. You now are a worthy vessel for the Holy Spirit to reside in. Why are you worthy? Not based on anything that you did. Right? We, can, we can't do, uh, we approach God with, with nothing. We're, but based on what Jesus did, he makes us worthy so that the Holy Spirit can live and reside in us. And the Christian life is allowing God to work and live through your life. Um, going on. To make sure that we know this isn't just some teaching that's obscure and pulled out of out of context or something. This is the theme of Christian living in the Bible and in the New Testament. Um, he, he ends it with this, and I think this is very interesting. As Jesus ends with a prayer, and it's almost a whole chapter long, his prayer. But at the end of that prayer, he prays for you. And many of you guys may have heard that as pastors use this passage. Hey, did you know Jesus prayed for you specifically? And he did in in, in, uh, John chapter 17, verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So hopefully that's, that's you this morning. I pray that they will all be one, just as you are 
you and I are one, and you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And I have to apologize right off the bat. I'm already doing it. The way this is phrased is kind of a tongue twister. But, but listen to what he's saying. Um, here's my prayer for you this morning. You, if you've believed this message that's been handed down from these disciples of who Jesus is and, and, and what this, the, all the implications of it, he says, um, uh, again, this phrasing is weird. I pray that they will, will all be one just as you and I are, are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. It keeps going. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And I've I've heard this passage so often taught as, hey, this is saying that, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, we should all be friends and get along and have that kind of unity. And yes, that's a part of the Christian life because Jesus says love people. And we should especially love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's clear. But what he's talking about is the oneness in unity that he has with God. That in his ministry, when he taught, when he did miraculous things, he claimed not that he was doing it of his own power. So he claims to be God. I mean, that's why they put him on a cross. That's why they crucified him. They, they tried killing him earlier in his ministry for claiming to be God. And, and as they were going to stone him, he, he left town. I mean, he made these, these claims. And, and yet he says he does the will of the Father. And he does nothing but the will of the Father. And that he does these miraculous things of healing people and, and other miraculous signs through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he, I mean, we get this picture of God being this big God, not like us, small God that, that we can think of in our own brain who's more like us. But, but the Bible presents a big God that is so big that he is three persons, yet one God. And, and, I, and I know that's, that's, that's not highly controversial in all of Christianity, but there are some pockets and some non-Christian groups uh, who, who you know, want to reject that at face value, but they do so by just saying, well, God's like us, and I can't imagine that, you know, um, uh, who's Jesus praying to in the garden? You have, you're, you're making God really, really small. The God that is presented in the Bible is so big, he's beyond us. He created everything that we try to limit him to. We try to limit him to time and space and matter and and history. He stands outside of that. And as he reveals his nature, his nature is that he is one being, one God, in three persons. And these three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have such incredible unity it's perfect of course unity that that when when jesus came in this world and did what he did as part of god's plan he displayed what we can have that he prayed for us to have such connection and unity and remaining in jesus 
that God can work through our lives as he lives through us. Um, we're going to run, run out of time. So two quick verses I want to prove that it's not just you know obscure, but this is what the Bible points to in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, throughout Judea and Samaria and through the ends of the earth. Man, the people who were before the Holy Spirit came and lived through them, that they had such unity with God that God's Spirit lived within them and, and worked and, and did what he wanted to do through them. They were scared, wimpy, former fishermen going, what are we going to do? They're out to get us next. Man, let's just try to get back into the fishing industry. Let's try. They were scared to death after Jesus' crucifixion. And then the Holy Spirit came. And, and Jesus said, this is going to be better than if I'm here. And he comes, and this scared group turns the whole world upside down. Um, that's what God wants. That's not, he wants that for us. That's a part of the Christian life. God wants to live through us and do incredible, not just so it's spectacular, but that is the Christian life. It may be in a more humble, quiet way than some of the characters that God uses throughout history. But the Christian life is about God working and living through us quickly. I'm trying to channel my inner Paul. And so I've got five different ways that I want to say the exact same thing. So I know we haven't even filled out anything, but this will take no time at all. Number one, Jesus' death changes where I'm going. Jesus' life changes who I am. So it doesn't end there, like, oh, i got a new destiny. I've got a new eternity. It's who I am now. I am now a child of God who the Holy Spirit lives in. Now, we still have our sin nature attached to us here in this world, and so we still struggle to surrender to the Holy Spirit living through our lives or surrender to ourselves and, and allow ourselves to continue to be in charge. And, and that's where we're headed in Romans and in the, the coming chapters of what that looks like to surrender your life to the Holy Spirit working and moving through your life versus continuing to allow you to do it. Number two, Jesus' death allowed me to become a Christian. Yes, but Jesus' life allows me to be the Christian I've become. That the standing that you're given as a free gift, as a child of God, as an ambassador of Christ, that, that you have that standing, and that legal standing is what justification is when you receive that free gift of salvation. But what the Christian life is, is allowing God to work through you to become and live out what you have received freely in what you say. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, a... Uh, a little kid who becomes king. And, and he's, he's fully king because that's how it works. He just was, you know, born in the right family or whatever, so he received it. And, and he's not much of a king. He's a young boy. But hopefully, if he's a good king, he'll want to live up to and live out being a good king who's ruling his country. Okay, some of that falls apart. Illustrations all kind of fall apart a little bit, but um, to become what God has made you. Number three, Jesus' death made heaven my home 
Jesus' life gives this life meaning. Jesus' death got me out of hell um, and into heaven. Jesus' life gets God out of heaven and into me. It, it kind of reminds me of a joke Jackson told me. <laughs> he said, hey, Dad, how do you make holy water? You boil the heck out of it. <laughs> and he even cleaned it up like that. <laughs> I was like, oh, hey, that's, he was scared to say that to me, I guess. <laughs> But that's what we think Christianity is, you know. It's just like, okay, Jesus died for my sins and, you know, boils the heck out of us, you know, and, and that's it. And then we're good. Like, okay, we don't have to go to the hot place. Yay. No, he wants to now have this relationship with you and work and live through you and accomplish his will in this world through you. Um, and number five, Jesus' death forgave my sin. But Jesus' life gives me power over sin. I just hope you don't miss the dynamic of what it means to have Christ now, if you've accepted Jesus, live through you in a powerful way. The last thing I want to share with you is um, this this kind of phrase um, that I think sums up some of this. Um, The Christian life isn't something you do It is something that is done through you at every level to be right with God. So many people, you know, they try their systems or their religion or whatever. Okay, how can I be worthy before God? Here's all the things I got to do. The Bible says Jesus does it. He does it. Well, okay, now I'm a Christian. Jesus did it. How do I live the Christian life? And I've run into a lot of Christians who then slip back into a religious mindset and think now, okay, I'm saved, but now like living the Christian life is, is this effort-based religious type system that I get into as kind of this burden. Jesus says his burden is light. No, it is allowing the Spirit of God to empower you, that he does the work, he does the motivation, he does the guidance, he does everything necessary to live through us and in us to accomplish what he wants to do.